Haskell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello and welcome to the January 2019 Haskell Leadership Podcast. And I do hope that the year has started well for you and for your team, wherever you happen to be working. So a range of voices and a range of issues for you in this podcast, including a visit to a school in Nottingham, which was all about inclusion. So we talk in quite a lot of detail about what inclusion might mean in practice. We also talk about diversity in school and college leadership. We talk about the girls network. We talk about executive leadership and what it's like to step from being a head to being an executive leader and the way you have to kind of reinvent that role to some extent. We talk about behaviour, which is always topical, as we know, but we start with Emma Knights of the National Governance Association, and we talk about the changing face of governance, both with governors and trustees. I'm Emma Knights, the Chief Executive of the National Governance Association. And Emma, governance is, is still one of those areas which is kind of misunderstood, isn't it, in all, at all kinds of levels. Um, so we're going to explore uh, Governance. We're going to explore being a member of a governing board versus being a trustee and looking at it from a kind of leader's point of view. But what do you think of the issues um, at the moment? We're speaking in January 2019. What, what for you are the issues? If we're talking particularly about multi-academy trust, because I think that's where um, governance is changing, it's more complex than if you're governing a, a single school, and we're still all trying out different structures and different approaches. Um, one of the big issues is working out who does what. Yeah. So at what level do you do it? Do you do it at trust board level? Do you do it at academy level? Do you do it in a committee? And what is it that the executives and the senior leaders do? And what is it that your volunteers do. And that might be slightly different in different maths, but you've got to be really clear why you're choosing different jobs for different people. Uh, and why would that be different in different maths? I mean, you, you, you might from the outside think, well, surely there is a national template which says this is the way you organise those things. There isn't, I take it. No, each trust has to develop a schema delegation, which we call SODs, and we were trying to persuade <laughs> the... That's the idea, not the people. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We were trying to persuade the Department for Education for quite a while that perhaps it ought to put out some templates. And when it didn't, we've published um, five SODs, and we're not saying they're the only ways you can do it. There might be other ways, but they're a starting um, uh, point. Uh, why would it be different in different places? Um, partly because of size of organisation also because of geography, also um, perhaps because of phase. If you're an all-secondary mm. math, it would be different from if you had special secondaries and primaries, potentially. Um, also because of your culture and ethos. So some trusts keep more at the centre. So finance is a good example. In some cases, most of the financial decisions are taken centrally by central executives and the MAT trustee board, whereas in other MATs, they delegate some of that financial responsibility down to, to their academy um, committees. So it is really quite variable from, from place to place. And um, as you know, we, we kind of represent uh, leaders, chief execs, heads, deputies, assistant heads, you represent uh, governors. Um, my guess is the issues we respectively are picking up are where there has not been absolute laser-like clarity around who does what. Is, is that the kind of core when there, is, there are kind of tensions between the executive and non-exec? 
Yes, I think there are there are absolutely tensions when it's not clear who should be doing what. And that might be because the written scheme isn't clear, or it might be they came up with a scheme and then put it in a filing cabinet and aren't really living it through. So one of the big issues is about getting the right people together to really thrash it out. Um, and we're finding that that um, really quite basic level of communication isn't always happening. So in some maths, for example, those that govern at academy level haven't met say for example the chief executive or haven't met the chair of the trustees um, so that being part of one organization and working together rather than duplicating each other which I think is a real cause of of tension and particularly for heads of schools if they end up having to report in two directions because they'll be line managed by an executive principal or by the CEO if they're also told they're accountable to the local governing body and that they will carry out performance management of them that's an impossible situation and we're still finding even this number of years in that it's not always clear to heads which way they're accountable. So it might be that the CEO and the trust board thinks it's all working marvellously, but actually those that are governing at academy level and the head are thinking they don't really know what it is they're supposed to be doing. What is the value that that academy committee's adding? Yes, that chimes with what members sometimes say to me, which is having perhaps been brought up through a kind of traditional model where they had their local governors and they knew the governors, they knew there were some parent governors and those people knew the school, that suddenly the sense of having trustees who in a number of ways are slightly more detached from what you're doing in your own school and they're more detached perhaps geographically, uh, they're more detached philosophically but they're also detached because they aren't necessarily immersed in education quite in the way that governors were. Is that an an area which has, has, has raised issues and if it has what do we need to do about it? There's definitely a big debate to be had about making sure we have the people with the right knowledge um, governing at different levels. And educational expertise um, and experience is absolutely vital in every board, whether it be your board of trustees or your your local um, committee. And I don't think we've quite got that right at the moment. So we do a huge annual survey every summer term, and it shows us that we have fewer people governing at trust board level with an educational background than we do on single school boards. And we think that's a problem. Um, So we're certainly hoping and encouraging trusts to really look for people with educational expertise to become trustees. So that could be a serving professional somewhere else um, who brings that external eye, or it could be a very recently retired um, head teacher or, or executive leader that's you know really got an important point part to, to play. Now it's interesting you say that because back in November I talked to Julian Drinkle as part of the podcast there. He's the CEO of the Academy's Enterprise Trust AET, which I think I'm right in saying is the biggest uh, multi-academy trust in the in the country. Um, and I just want to p- play a little bit of what he said there. The Ascol Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Um, I think there are two things that we're really trying to achieve with the governance model. Uh, at one level, and the most important one, is that educational standards and the quality of educational governance continues to go up. 
We all know that governance is getting more complicated, it's getting more technical, there's huge amounts of complexity around legalities, uh, new regulations. So we want to make sure that the quality goes up. But the second thing is we also want it to be really supportive, good educational advice. We want proper educationalists who've been there and done it. And so some of the problems that I think exist with governing bodies is that they can't cope with the novelty and the complexity and the technicalities. Uh, and they also lose their focus about what the real governance imperative is. So what we've devised is a system whereby we've got chairs of governors who are regional, who are absolutely exceptional. They've done all aspects of education, really know what they're talking about. But we ask the principals of every one of our academies to sit on at least one governing body. Mm. And we also insist that every governing body, in addition to having an excellent chair, also has two peer principles on that governing body. And what our principles are saying to us is, these new governing bodies are so much more focused, and we've got people who really understand and are engaged with the problems that we face, and that it's lovely to be both a giver and a recipient of governor services. Now that proved relatively controversial with some people and I, I li- listened to that and I, and I think what he's saying is let's make sure we've got the right people around that including educational expertise. Uh, but how do you, you, you listen to that? How do you respond to it? I completely with Julia in terms of um, I think it's great if principals and indeed actually we're really keen on middle leaders as well um, govern but the big difference that we have with Julian is we don't want them governing within their own school or their own trust we think that they should be governing in another school um, and or in the case of a mat in another trust Um, and that's a real win-win because both parties get new ideas and learn from each other the problem of keeping it all with your within your own institution is that it it can be the same ideas that that are, are being passed around and when you come down to the fundamentals of governance it's about support and challenge and it's much much harder to challenge an organisation that pays uh, your salary. (laughs) Whereas if you're somewhere else governing, you really, really understand what governance is about. Um, And we're actually on a a campaign in 2019 to persuade more schools to help their staff, particularly their middle leaders who are aspiring to, to headship, to volunteer elsewhere and actually we've had a really good response of people coming forward and saying they've done this and that actually it's the best CPD um, that they do and from a governing board's point of view to know that an applicant for example for headship has been there and done that and understands what governance is really like is incredibly important because there are quite a few executives who haven't had that experience and are not necessarily very knowledgeable about governance and, quite frankly, about how hard it is. So I think some of the things that Julian said suggested to governors that were listening that actually they weren't up to the job and it's about having that sort of real respect for each other um, and strong relationships and I think it's much easier for educationalists who have governed in a different establishment to really understand the nuances and the challenges and the skills that are needed to do it well. Absolutely. And then finally, just in terms of thinking to the future, there's a, a story which we all need to tell, don't we, about multi-academy trusts, which are often presented in a kind of toxic 
way. And yet, I mean, and Julian talking about AET was a very good example of this. What you've got is schools which have been left out, left behind in communities for years and years, where someone is saying, "We think those children deserve what other children in other schools are getting." Now, part of that is about governors seeing that they're part of that mission as well, which is all about us all recognizing that the opportunities of multi-academy trust, mentoring leaders, giving support, of, of moving people between different schools so they're getting that kind of experience. That has to be a more positive story. What can we collectively do to tell a better story about um, maths, do you think? I think that's really um, important. When we started working with, um, in fact, federations as well as smaller mats and talking to the staff and the leaders about the advantages, every single one of them said, why didn't we do this earlier? Because actually what they had learned from each other and bringing together sort of consistent systems, um, the best systems, uh, the best curriculum um, was so positive, which is why obviously a few years ago with you, we produced um, the Shaping Our Destiny series Series, which was about how you might go um, about joining or, or forming a mat and we are currently um, updating those and we will continue to make that argument that in terms of um, development for staff there's huge advantage to being within a group of schools rather than um, rather than isolated. Uh, to, to come back to your point about community, that is one of the things that some mats are doing better than others, which is making sure that their local governance um, actually still draws on the on the community and it is, and is sort of meaningful dialogue. In some mats, that's not working as well as as others. So it's something that really needs thought about because we know large numbers of mat leaders really value those links into the community. Uh, but if you're going to attract people to govern, to volunteer for you, you do have to give them a job that's meaningful. They have to feel that they're adding some sort of value. So those the discussions are going on all over the country. And I think it's a really important part of accountability to community that we don't perhaps talk about enough because we talk about Ofsted and we talk about performance tables, but actually we're all here, aren't we, to, to serve our pupils and serve our, our communities. So I think more conversations about this in the coming year would be really good. Yeah. Emma Nice, thank you. So I'm Carol Jones. Um, I was a London head twice and Askell's Leadership Specialist and I'm now Chair of the Leading Women's Alliance. And just tell us what that alliance is. Well we set the alliance up about two or three years ago um, because we wanted to ensure that more women uh, were encouraged into headship uh, because we believe that head teachers obviously have a key role to play in, child, in every child and young people's life chances and we wanted the best heads in every school and we knew there was an untapped pool of potential women heads who with encouragement, support and top tips and events might be encouraged to take on school leadership at a high level. And what kind of things are you doing with them? I mean, how, how is it in practice an alliance? About three years ago, there were five organisations that came together. ASCOL initiated uh, the Leading Women's Alliance when I was uh, director of, or um, leadership specialist. Um, we had UCL join in, uh, then Future Leaders Ambition School Leadership, some of the teaching school alliances and so on. And we all came together, those of us who had been running women's events in order to encourage women into, into leadership, and decided that we would, first of all, have an annual summit 
and at the end of every summit we would review our pledge. So we came up with a pledge to support women into headship but also to try and change the structures that are preventing women for applying to, to headship. So as an example, we wanted to and still have in our pledge to revise um, governance arrangements, to encourage governors to think more laterally about what headship might look like, to consider co-headship for example, to con consider um, shared headship and also then to think about some of the professional development that women would want and need when they go into headship and most significantly what kind of network they would want to help them we remain in headship and be nourished and supported. By I love that. I love that idea of nourished, and it, it leads us on to what I think is a really innovative and, and probably for some people quite controversial idea, which is one of the MPQs, this National Professional Qualification for Subject Leaders. And you've got something really quite bold there. Just tell us what's planned. Well, we know that there is an untapped pool of resources here, fantastically talented um, teachers who could go on to become the leaders of the future. And we want to encourage uh, those people in that pool, particularly women, to step up to consider applying for headship eventually at some point in their lives, if not immediately. And in order to do that, we want to ensure that we offer an accredited programme, a leadership programme, in which um, every participant can participate in not only a talk programme, but um, coaching. They will all have a coach. They will all be supported and mentored through a leadership project so that the outcome is not only something they feel proud of having achieved, which hopefully will have also improved the outcomes for their children and young people in their schools, but also will have enabled them to consider and reflect on their own leadership styles. And by learning together, by working together, as we've discovered in the Leading Women's Alliance, we run our pop-ups from time to time, we know that women find a great deal of support, guidance and um, encouragement from each other. Some people, some women are already in schools that have great heads who tap them on the shoulder, encourage, support and so on, but not all do. And most of the women in our alliance actually are not, uh, don't frequently meet social media, they don't use it very often. Um, and so it's very important that we have an, a, a network, an opportunity for women to come together, to learn together and to grow their leadership and to flourish together. Carol Jones, thank you very much. Thank you very Perfect. much, Jeff. I'm Paul Dix. Uh, I'm Executive Director of Pivotal Education and I'm Chair of the TBAP Trust. Just give us a, a flavour of the philosophy then behind the organisation because it's, it's about the adults as much as it is the children, isn't it? So our practice, um, our philosophy uh, comes from working in some of the most difficult urban schools, the most challenging schools. Um, and, you know, of course, in those situations, there's a t temptation to, to sort of nail everything down and, and go the punishment route. But actually, the success we've seen in, in practice is around shifting adult behaviours. And I don't just mean making adults nicer. I mean deliberately corralling them uh, around certain things. So the example I gave today was, was you know, a large 1500 school on the coast um, having a real difficulty in times of mass movement. And I know a lot of schools, secondary schools especially, have an issue with, with times when children are moving. So what we've done is we've put every adult standing for two minutes at the beginning of school, two minutes at lunchtime and two minutes at the end of the day on the same spot. There's a visible staff presence. 
behavior management is a team sport. It's not about giving a load of strategies to a struggling NQT. It's about how does the culture and how does the behavior of every member of staff hold the boundaries, hold the standards, promote good movement around the school? And how is that visible or audible? So in some of our primary schools, you know, that you can walk down a corridor and hear the words ready, respectful and safe over and over again. The kids don't need the posters on the wall. They hear it from the mouths of the adults. So what we strive for is absolute consistency where you can't put a cigarette paper between the attitude of one adult and another. And, and we go to even the point where we will script responses for distressed children so that so that staff know what they're going to say, know when, you know, what they're going to say if the child responds poorly and how they're going to extricate themselves from that conversation. In my experience, Jeff, and I'm sure uh, in yours as well, most of the time, and I'm guilty of it as well, that we walk into a situation, we say, what should you be doing? And we have no idea what we're going to say next. So, <laughs> so we're about making schools safe, calm and predictable. And the way you do that is, yes, there's some tinkering around with policy and yes, there's some tinkering around with classroom practice. But at the core of that is a calm, consistent adult. So you don't shout, no screw faces. And, and they've made a decision that they're going to work together on behaviour. Um, and it's not just a sort of a, you know, it's not the everyone check uniform for the next few weeks thing that kind of lives and then dies. It, it's about permanent change from the adults uh, and doing that so it fits the context, it fits the learners, and it, and it meets the needs of the 29 and the two that, that are struggling. Uh, a couple of examples uh, that you referenced in there. One is uh, do away with the tutting chair. Just tell, tell us what that is. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> so uh, Amazingly, I still go to schools where um, midday supervisors ask children to stand with their noses against the wall when they've misbehaved. Um, we see children placed on public display, like uh, you know, like medieval medieval heads on the on, on the on the gates of uh, of London Bridge. Look. If a child is appallingly behaved in the lesson, if they're rude, there's no problem with keeping them in at break time. But let's not put them on display with the idea that humiliation is going to make this better. Humiliation, apparently, uh, so people tell me, worked perfectly in the 1950s. Uh, these days, you know... It's character form. <laughs> character form. These days, you know, being famous for, for a 14-year-old, um, you know, they're not thinking about their future. They're not thinking about tomorrow even they're thinking about the here and now and if you put them on display and every member of staff walks past and tuts at them they think they're a hero why not just put them uh, in, in a safe space maybe even talking with an adult to, to talk about their behavior uh, maybe spending some time you know just contemplating you know why they've been kept in at break time that's okay too but I'm just trying to I, I tell you tell you what it is I met a, a, 20 years ago um, a man called Rob Long um, I don't know if you've come across Rob, amazing educational psychologist, did a lot of work with the NUT, and he taught me something, and I can't, it's just a truth, he taught me the term pip and rip, praise in public, reprimand in private, and I know reprimand's an old word, but I, I think that that is spot on, so what we do at Pivotal is we follow that through, there's no naughty names on the boards in classroom, there's no sticker charts where some children have got more stickers than others, there's, there's no humiliation in any form, but that does not mean there's not discipline. That does not mean there's not boundaries. And that does not mean there are not very hard conversations with children who, are, who, who, who know better and can behave better. The second example which you used was something which, uh, from, from my own time as, as head, we used to try and do. And it's the idea that if, you, if you're on call as a senior member of staff and you go to a lesson, 
probably the worst thing you can do is to kind of appear to be the cavalry coming in there and, and ending up undermining the teacher. Just talk, talk us through yeah. that. The trouble is that as a class teacher, you kind of want the cavalry, don't you? You know, there is that feeling of, please, somebody help me. You know, please, somebody can make them do what I can't. And I felt that as a newly qualified teacher for a long time. But of course, in order to sustain behaviour change, you, you can't take the authority away from the teacher. So when you arrive at a lesson, and I was a head of year for many years, um, I arrive at the lesson and I've got two options. The first option is I just take the child away because it's quite obvious that that child's behaviour has gone way above our standards and that child needs to be removed for the sake, his sake or her sake and the sake of the rest of the children. Fine, I can make that decision. Uh, but I won't converse with the child and I won't converse with the member of staff. I, I'll wait until people are calm. My second option, which I would have thought in 95% of the cases is the thing to do, um, is I'll go in and teach the class for two minutes, which allows the teacher to step outside with the child and it gives that teacher the choice. Is this, you know, can I talk to this child? Can I talk them down and, and reset them for the learning? Or actually, has it gone too far that their emotions are, you know, they're too distressed and actually they do need to be taken away? And I, I think that's very powerful because it shows you as a leader in a leadership role, you know, taking responsibility, taking over the class, settling them down, but it, it also gives the proper authority to the teacher to say, this is your decision. And we were talking earlier, Jeff, you know, there's nothing worse as a class teacher than, than someone coming along from senior leadership, taking the child outside, and then knocking on the door and saying, oh, he's all right now, miss. You know, uh, that undermines you. you. You can feel the class looking at you thinking, hold on, you're not in charge of this lesson. That person who just yeah. arrived is in charge. So we'd be very careful in schools not to give away our authority to senior leadership. And actually, what we promote at Pivotal is, you know, if you're a senior leader, a pastoral leader, trying to help out another teacher or just a colleague, stand alongside them and both of you talk to the child so that you can teach the child that, that there's a unified approach and, and that we are a team, but also so you can train that member of staff in how I do it. I mean, as a newly qualified teacher, I never knew how to, you know, who teaches you how to speak to a child for two minutes outside of a lesson unless it gets modelled to you. And so that modelling is so important. I talk, you know, talk today a lot about how pastoral leaders, SLT, they're not there to manage the behaviour of the children. They're there to manage the staff so that the staff can, can, can manage it for themselves. Paul Dix, thank you very much. Thanks, Jeff. Charlie Young, co-founder and CEO of The Girls Network. And tell us about The Girls Network. What is it? What is it you do? What's the aspiration? So The Girls Network is a mentoring charity for 14 to 19-year-old girls from some of the least advantaged communities around the country. And we match those girls one-to-one -one with professional women over the course of a year to build up skills and confidence, but also to open up networks and opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have access to so that they can be ambitious for their futures and they can also be supported to realise those ambitions. And you're the CEO of this, so you set this up? Yes, did I did. Yeah, yes. So what, what was the kind of impetus? Did that come from your own experience? Yes, yeah, so I used to be a teacher and it was really seeing um, the challenges that some of the girls in my classroom were facing, the sort of double disadvantage of being a girl and therefore the expectations placed on you about how you behave, you know, you've got to be pretty polite, quiet, neat and tidy, get things right, um, and also the expectations about what you might want to go on to do, what kind of careers. But then for many of the girls, they were coming from communities where maybe very few of the adults were working, or if they were, they were pursuing jobs to bring in money rather than careers were passionate about and typically women in the communities were undertaking jobs that we sort of call the five c's cleaning catering clerking caring cashiering nothing wrong with those careers but they're typically the lower paid lower status jobs and actually that was having a real impact on the girls and their expectations about what they could go on to achieve 
You said something which uh, resonated with me. My background is English and literacy, right? And mm. so I know from research that right from the age of children being babies, the way adults speak to boys is different from the way they speak to girls. So if boys are making a noise, they'll say, oh, he's kind of a lively young man. And if it's a girl making a noise, they'll say, what's she upset about? Now, you said something similar about what we expect in terms of uh, girls as opposed to boys, the way they're judged. Yeah, um, so, so one of the things we see is around the way girls and boys are praised and the way they're encouraged. Um, and typically, boys are praised for effort and for trying things and encouraged to do more. And girls tend to be praised for the outcome. So, you know, well done, you've done that, that's a really good achievement. And the knock on effect of that is that girls tend to be more worried about getting things wrong and so are therefore much more risk averse. Um, and also, you know, we know around sort of growth mindset, fixed mindset, actually, to encourage encourage a growth mindset the important thing is to 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 praise the effort and the trying and you know keep trying you can achieve this if you're just praising the output and you know the end result that tends to encourage a much more fixed mindset so you can kind of see it in both those respects and uh, just finally in terms of um where the girls network works where are you based and where are the schools you work with so we're currently based across london the south coast particularly brighton and portsmouth although also sort of spreading down to southampton and bournemouth we're based in uh, manchester birmingham newcastle and liverpool and are continuing to spread across the country and if people want to find out more about you where where do they go to so our website is www.thegirlsnetwork.org.uk we're on twitter at the girls net and instagram at the girls network Charity, thank you. Now, we've got one of your ambassadors here. You're 17. Just introduce yourself. My name is Isis Elokarkera, and I'm a previous mentee at the Girls Network, and I'm an ambassador. Okay, so what what did you have to do to become an ambassador? Tell us something about you being at school and how how you then heard about the Girls' Network. So how I heard about the Girls' Network was my teacher, Miss Chapman, was particularly interested in encouraging young girls and um, found out about the network. And they came into our school, we had to um, apply, we found out some information, and then through that process we were able to be matched with a mentor who had a similar career pathway, um, which was similar to what we wanted to get up to in the future. And what kind of school were you in? Uh, All girls' school. Uh, in London? Yeah, North London, yeah. yeah. In so, and so what did, it, what did this do? Because if you're in an all-girls school, uh, which I haven't been in, um, uh, the, what we would assume is that automatically you're being surrounded by a culture which says, you know, women can do well, role models are there. What is it the Girls Network brought to you in addition to that? If that makes sense? As well as um, what you've rightly so said, I think what it brought was a mentor, somebody that would listen to you, somebody that would guide you, and somebody that would just really support you and remember that would remember to encourage you because sometimes in school it's quite difficult to receive all of those um, things but with the Girls Network we really were encouraged and empowered. And you got involved in debating yeah. did you not? Can you give us a flavour of that? Also I was the president of Debate Mate for a time at my school and um, what that meant was my school was able to come top 8 out of 250 schools <laughs> which was a nice um, opportunity and experience. <laughs> And uh, finally, what is it you're doing now and what is it you hope to do next? Um, I'm currently studying my A-levels at Mirafid Ellis in Euston and I'm studying politics, sociology and geography. And in the future, I'd like to be a politician as well as, as, well as I'd like to set up a chain of Christian free schools, which each have a chain of um, dedicated photography studios. But when you've yeah. done that, could you sort Brexit out for us as well, yeah. please? <laughs> Thank you. Hey, great to speak to you and great Thank to speak you. to you as well. Thank, Thank you very much. Sean Hampton, CEO of Archway Learning Trust. Tell us a bit about Archway Learning Trust, Sean. Okay, Archway is a trust of five schools currently, soon to become seven, four secondary schools and one primary. Uh, three of those 
secondaries are Church of England, as is the primary, but we also have a community school as part of our trust. We have a free school bid in the moment, and that will be a community school as well. And the two additional schools that we're hoping to work alongside are, again, Church of England schools. And when you listen to David Carter, formerly National Schools Commissioner, he would always say that the whole idea of being a mat is that you're adding value beyond what an individual school could do. What kind of value do you think that being a mat is adding? Uh, I have really, really enjoyed watching the the school that was Blue Coat growing into a math that is now Archway. And I think that it has real opportunities when you work as a family of schools to be able to do so much more than you can do on your own. So, for example, um, for children, I'm able to bring in the absolute best teaching staff possible and even if I can't afford to have them in every school all the time, the, the leaders can go from school to school to share the best practice. So if there's one person on one site that's absolutely fantastic at algebra, they can share their practice with everybody else so that students across the trust are getting the absolute best, um, best practice for teaching and learning. Uh, we're able to employ um, a wonderful safeguarding lead and so she's able to work across the whole site to ensure that our DSLs on every site are supported but actually think strategically how, how we can enrich and support and keep our children safe across the whole trust. Um, and for me as a, as a leader who's trying to ensure that we've got the best people in the best places, having other schools to offer a variety of... Um, development opportunities, sort of secondments to grow their skills, to be able to put a CPL offer so that from starting with us, maybe in the skit, because we have a skit as well, a trainee teacher, all the way through to them becoming a head teacher and being able to offer that whole um, breadth of opportunities for teachers, I think is also um, incredibly enriching for me to be able to see that and develop teachers, but also gives them the opportunity to see themselves as joining a family that's going to be looking after them for a long time. Uh, and, and it means that some of those frustrations when you're just one school and, and you desperately want to keep that would-be head of maths, that there are usually opportunities in the other schools so you can move them around and, and, and allow them to grow without stifling them or waiting for dead man's shoes. So I think there's a whole mm. breadth of opportunity, really. I think in a fragmented system, what you're showing is you can create coherence and opportunities yeah. for people. A um, couple of other things. One is the, re the reason I've come along against a back drop when people are talking about off-rolling and unethical conduct and so on is you are absolutely committed to inclusion and what's been striking for me it's not in a soppy <laughs> sentimental way though actually it would be easy to be soppy and sentimental about what you're doing on behalf of those youngsters from quite often chaotic backgrounds um but you're also determined that they are going to leave with something that has some value Just describe the kind of things you're doing on inclusion Okay, well, Nottingham City has, a, a, unfortunately, a really poor reputation of very high numbers of permanently excluded children. Um, and partly as a Church of England trust, but partly simply on a human level, I know that every child I permanently excluded is much more likely to go into prison, is much more likely to end up as a suicide victim, and will not be contributing to Nottingham City, which is a city I love and I would love to see uh, regenerated and strong and growing and, and ready to educate the next generation of young people. 
So we took the decision some time ago that we wouldn't permanently exclude unless we absolutely had to. And, and as a consequence across the trust, we haven't permanently excluded a child for three years now. Mm. We never say never because I think that's a foolish thing yeah. for any leader to yeah. do. But we try really, really hard not to permanently exclude children. And we get round that in a number of ways. Inclusion runs through the heart of everything we do. So if you want to come and work here, you have to know that our inclusion agenda is really, really powerful. We have a focus provision for autistic children at one of our sites, the secondary sites. We also built one into the primary site. We have a huge number of SEN children and we have a huge number of very vulnerable, behaviourally challenging children. So we've developed um, strategies and processes around those vulnerable children to try and support them. So there's a key stage three provision that the secondaries can feed into where they receive intensive support around whatever issues they are. They might be anger. Uh, it might just be that actually they've come up through the system and their needs have never been identified. So we've had children arrive at 11 who simply couldn't read and therefore misbehaving in the classroom was a way of diverting attention from literacy problems. So they are diagnosed, there's intensive support and the intention is that they return to, to mainstream education. Where that's not possible, we have an off-site provision at Key Stage 4 where we endeavour to ensure we have qualified English, maths and science pro uh, teachers providing really high quality qualifications for those young people. And alongside, we also try and engage them in particular options that might be of, of special interest to them. So that might be construction, it might be um, uh, doing something around, around sports science, whatever their particular interests are. We work incredibly closely with those parents, so we're in very, very regular contact sometimes it's hourly contact um, and those children are are succeeding you know they are passing GCSEs they are being successful despite some of the issues around them and and we very much take the approach that they are vulnerable young people even if it doesn't feel like that um, and that they have multiple disadvantages already but surely they are entitled to the best possible educational provision we can give them. Well said. Finally, um, we all know that as heads we tend to be control freaks. I think you've admitted you're nothing different. But you've stepped up to being an executive leader now. What's, what's that process been like well, and what have you, you learnt from doing that? Um, yes, you're quite right. I think most heads are control freaks. Uh, I think lots of leaders show those traits. Uh, I found it very, very hard to start with. I think when oh, I adored being a head teacher, I just loved it. And you are completely in control. The lines of accountability are really, really clear to everybody. They know that the buck stops with you and the parents want to come straight to you. And sometimes it's actually difficult to get other people to intervene. So you're not dealing with everything in a school, but you are very much in charge. You move to the role of CEO and all of a sudden you are trying to exert as much influence over a school but you're not that leader, you're not that head teacher. Uh, and I remember the first September when I didn't do the assembly to all the new year sevens. And part of me broke <laughs> because that's not my job anymore. Okay. Those relationships aren't for me. I mean, yes, I'm based in a school and I know lots and lots of students, but they had to form those relationships with their new head teacher. Uh, so it's about learning to influence and step back and allow, I'm blessed with some glorious leaders, them to, to do their jobs, understanding that they are not uh, clones of me and neither should they be. 
and some of that has been difficult if you have a leader who leads in a very different style to you being able to strip back the style issues and actually understanding the substance and realizing that your your intentions are all aligned and allowing people to do that and I think it's a learning process that is still ongoing. I have very close relationships with the um, principals at every site and we meet very, very regularly and we talk about the differences and we talk about our issues. But that um, control that's not direct, but more of an influ influencing control has been something I've, I've wrestled with. Um, and actually it was at that point that I went and sought a coach for myself mm. in order to try and develop my own skills because I think there are very specific skills you need to be a head teacher and there are different skills to be a CEO and, and I didn't have enough of them to start with. Um, and so that's been a learning journey for me and I found that incredibly powerful and, and, and very, very useful. Did that, did that coach come from within education or outside? As it happens, yeah, it, it's, she's an educational coach um, and she's been brilliant for me. Uh, but I think it could come from outside because I think the skills that you need are sort of um, around strategy, developing ideas, developing people. And I'm not a natural coach myself, but actually the role of the CEO does lend itself to coaching, but I'm far, far too directive. <laughs> so watching a coach coaching me and trying to learn a little bit about, um, I remember her saying, don't, don't ask why, it's a really aggressive question. <laughs> Try, what's the rationale behind? That sounds like you genuinely want to know. And I said, well, I do want to know when I say why. And they said, yes, but it doesn't sound like that. <laughs> so there have been all sorts of tiny things to big things. Um, and, 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 and all of that's helped. But I, you just learn as you go along as well. And, and um, I think I'm a, a better CEO today than I was when I started. I've got no doubt about that. But I suspect I've still got a long way to go in my learning as well. Thanks so much for inviting me. You're welcome. Wonderful. It's Thank you. Lovely to have you. Thank, <laughs> Thank you for coming. So I'm Lee Myervold and I am Head of Support and Alternative Provision for the Archway Trust. And we're here just on the outskirts of Nottingham Lee. Tell us um, specifically where we are. Um, so we're in the um, Aspley Lane area, uh, Heysen Green area. Um, a lot of our intakes from Radford and around the area is... Um, uh, high crime, low low uh, low employment, um, and what we're trying to do is across the whole um, city, whether pupils need mainstream setting or not, trying to raise aspirations and and make sure they go and uh, and become a, a successful member of society. And you're on a mission, aren't you, to avoid um, the damaging effects of permanent exclusion yeah. by trying to not mollycoddle youngsters, not patronise them, but trying to make sure that. Uh, the reasons behind their behaviour are being addressed through uh, a, a sense of human support, but also through academic success. Is that does that kind of catch yeah. you? Yeah, I think it's what we're trying to do is is hit it at both um, spectrums, as a social and emotional spectrum, but also um, where I feel as though well, maybe schools don't focus on academia, um, that that we make sure that when they leave our school it's not short of qualifications to go on and be successful. And, and what we feel is though it needs both. It needs both to, um, as a human being, as, an, as, as having that social and emotional um, level of um, maturity to move on, but also not without the, the academia and, and, and the GCSEs to match that. So 
we run a we run a um, a curriculum that matches the national curriculum within maths, English, and science. That allows our key stage three pupils to transfer back into mainstream school if these areas are addressed with a with a quicker effect. Um, but also, it leads them onto their key stage four provision, even if that's alternative to to set them up to to start GCSEs, which. And, and uh, just uh, just on my tour, I met a, a number of students. Just looked in on a lad there who come from really you know, challenging kind of backgrounds, mm. without naming any names. Just gives a flavour of some of the things in their home circumstances. Youngsters are having to navigate their way through. Um, so we've got we've got a young boy who we've just seen um, who has he's he's um, he was born with alcohol fetal syndrome. Um, he was taken off um, parents and and is now in care. And has not been able to, due to not maturing within resilience, um, his emotional status, um, he's not been able to set in, settle into any school. So the virtual school contacted us and we've, we've got a really good working relationship with virtual school now. Their work runs throughout our provision um, within attachment. And, and we said, absolutely, we, we'll educate him. And, and, and it's got to the point where, you know, real close-knit family um, type environment, um, he he has he has thrived and uh, loves being here. And is he here? Be, he's he's here because he's been excluded from previous schools. Yeah, mainstream school. Yeah, so he's come from a wider Nottingham City school, um, in which he was at risk of um, permanent exclusion, um, and they um, they they commissioned the place for for us to educate him here. Quite striking because what, what I notice about him is he's working through there with uh, Sam, one of your great teachers there, um, is how his face lights up at, at adults yeah. showing interest yeah. in him. Did you say something about uh, the end of the day when he doesn't want to go home? Yeah, um, so we've not had him at any point. We Previously, after reading his files and, and meeting his care and working very closely with the, with the virtual schools, um, he hasn't wanted to go to any school. Um, but now we have the same thing every day. Carer turns up to pick him up. He runs into the back. He hides because he doesn't want to go home. He eventually comes out with a big smile on his face and, and asks his carer, can we go to McDonald's every day? <laughs> In which his carer says no. <laughs> so, <laughs> Some work to do on the health eating side. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, just, just, just finally, so the aspiration for him, he's in year nine? He's in seven. Year seven, okay. Yeah, he's in seven. But the aspiration would be that what, what happens to him in year 11? Well, in year 11, what we would absolutely want is for him to take GCSEs out of, out of his education. Um, that's what he's preparing to now. We, we've got every one of our pupils who generally come in with disaffection, have low literacy levels, low numeracy levels. So we go above and beyond to fast track that, um, especially in key stage three, because ideally we want to transfer pupils back to mainstream school. Um, but actually what, what we're saying is it's okay that he needs a different setting and, and, and if he goes into key stage four, it won't be without all the key learning interventions and social-emotional interventions that you need to be successful in GCSE. So. We're walking across to your key stage four provision. Yeah. Uh, and we're, we're essentially we've got this kind of oasis of the different um, schools and facilities within uh, an estate. What were you saying about cr- crime? Um, so there are, I mean, there are levels of crime within our um, key stage three. Um, we obviously see the best of them in school, but in the community, we, we, you know, we are, we are not naive enough to think that younger pupils aren't. But generally, the emotional issues are are um, higher than crime issues. That turns into key stage four. Um, 
into you know high crime and and what kind of things are we talking about when we talk about crime um, the risk of, of gang related activity and at the moment pupils being groomed um, for the use of everything from stealing to um, committing assaults on people to transporting crack cocaine across across the city. Yeah, we hear about county lines and so on, but you're saying there's actually something within the city. What, what, yeah. What, so county, county lines is, is big in the news at the moment because the city's children are taking drugs across into the county. Yes. For every one of them children, there's between 20 and 30 within the city taking cocaine across within the city lines and they're getting paid cash to do that cash yeah um what would, what, what would every, and any, anything from 30 to 50 pound every time somebody takes somebody takes drugs across the city pick it up on one point drop it at another point so you've got those youngsters doing that by by night and at weekends who are then here by day working towards the gcse's and so yeah i mean we've got uh, this is emma now we've got um we've got a pupil who will sell herself in the night um, to, to men who was part of gang-related activity. Um, and she will come into school the next day before she goes to, um, before she goes home, before she tells anybody else. Um, and, I mean, that is incredibly sad. And this time next year, she will be 17. And that's why we're trying to have our own free school we're, we're trying to have our own independent school so that we can create a sixth form that we know for the next year we've got another year to tackle some of these issues with our most vulnerable pupils and my biggest worry is colleges aren't inclusive um going into post 16 colleges they're not inclusive and you can be taken off role for attendance um but you know, these pupils need someone to champion them and that's what we're trying to do sort of within this school, but what we want to do post-16. Thank you. I'm Malcolm Probe. Um, one of my roles is to lead the uh, National Professional Qualification for Executive Leaders for ASCAL and a group of four teaching schools. Very good. We're going to talk about that. And I think I'm right in saying that there's quite a lot of people who have been heads for... Uh, a few years or principals and they then step up to executive leadership a CEO position or whatever it is and suddenly they're in uncharted territory and these people who have been uh, very confident in their previous roles suddenly find there's all kinds of stuff which is new to them is that how it feels from from your point of view? Yes, yeah, certainly that's the feedback that, that we get on that the people who sit there and say you know, well I, I've become an executive leader what is, what is the actual role? and leading more than one institution is actually quite different from leading a, a single institution and the roles do vary a little bit in terms of some people still retain the leadership of a single school whilst they're taking on an executive role in another school and you've got other people who are actually chief executive officers who lead a group of three four five or even larger groups of, of schools so the roles are, are variable but it is important that people learn what is about, different about executive leadership rather than leadership of a single institution. And can we just tease out some of the things that are different? Because I know early on that uh, some of the people who've stepped into that role have said to me that suddenly they feel a bit destabilised. They're not sure where they should be. Should they be very visible in the school where they were previously, for example, or is their role to be in an office somewhere else? I mean, what, what's your insight, having talked to lots and lots of these people? 
It's actually a combination of the two because they do have to spend some time in institutions because they do have to have a working knowledge of the institutions within their, within their group of schools. But the key thing is they are working through other people. That they cannot do things themselves. And it's one of the key messages that we have to put over to people on the NPQEL programme is to say, you are not there to do things yourself. What you're there to do is to work very, very much through other people, to support them, to ensure that they have the skills, the knowledge, and the understanding, and that they have the system set up within their institutions to actually move the institutions forward, to improve the attainment of the youngsters within it, to ensure that the behavioural systems are there. So it isn't doing things in an institution yourself, it's ensuring that you have set up the systems and supported individuals to deliver that quality of education across the whole trust. And in a way, what that ought to feel like, certainly in, in, in the best instances, is that here's an opportunity for you to take the skill set you have developed through your own leadership in one institution and now be able to put that into a kind of mentoring, advising, feedback kind of role, the satisfaction of behind-the-scenes helping other people, and that's what it ought to feel like at its best, I imagine. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. It, it, it's basically you're widening your contribution because as the head of an individual school, if it was a primary school, you might have had 50 to 200 youngsters, 300 youngsters in your school, secondary school, a lot more, but you're now responsible perhaps for, for thousands of young people so it is ensuring that that you build on your experience and you then are sharing that experience with us you're mentoring you're coaching the people who are in the leadership roles within the, the schools within your group of schools within your within your your trust so it's it, it is a different role but as an individual head, you probably were engaged in mentoring and coaching members of your leadership team and your senior, your senior staff. So you're just moving that up a level to the fact that you're mentoring and coaching those at the very top level within the individual schools. Okay, now f finally, as we said at the beginning, this is people stepping into what can feel like uncharted territory. How do you deal with trustees in a way that's different from working with governors and so on? And one of the things that ASCAL has done is to develop this MPQEL programme, which we're doing regionally. Could you give us a flavour of what our MPQEL qualification is like, how it works, and particularly the kind of things it's covering? I mean, the, 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 there is a standard uh, curriculum which is set down by the DFE um, for the MPQEL, MPQEL programme. I mean, what we're trying to do is use a lot of the expertise which our existing uh, ASCOL members who are in executive uh, positions have. So a lot of the programme is delivered by people who have experience of being chief execs or, or executive leaders. We build their experience in to support and deliver on, on, on the curriculum. So we're using face-to-face -face sessions in regional groups where they're relatively small groups. You can get a lot of very active discussion going. We're able to bring in national figures for the national training days, supported by online learning materials, uh, webinars, uh, either mentoring or coaching, uh, coaching uh, programs, and also the opportunity to have 360-degree uh, reviews, but at the start of the program, at the end of the program, see how people develop. So we're focusing on uh, how you lead across a group of, ins uh, of institutions. We're focusing about how you lead 
people looking at the change management that goes in. A strong focus of our program is on ethical leadership and that in fact is one of the key things that, that we start off on. We look also about how you develop curriculum uh, and teaching and learning and how you get excellence in those areas across the group of, a group of schools. Uh, we focus very much on, on people management and how you develop people coming through your group of schools. So one of the advantages of having a group of schools is you can start to uh, talent, identify key talent and actually move people around within your group of schools so you are, you are making the most of the skills and attributes that, that people people have got we also have to deal with the routines you know how do you manage your your, your trustees how do you deal with the, the basics within the school uh, you know behavioral management all of those things they're all covered but the key thing is it's how you are doing that as an executive leader rather than the implementer uh, insight running a single school it's a great program Malcolm Tripp thank you thank you the Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.